You are listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. It has been estimated that the internet grew by at least 100% each year during the 1990s, and the population of internet users is currently estimated to be around 1.5 billion. Although tracking exact numbers for internet use is tentative right now, the continuing growth and common use of the internet is apparent to all and has many in the medical community considering how they will keep up with this latest form of communication. Electronic mail, for example, is tempting in its ease, yet certainly worth serious investigation by clinicians before beginning correspondence with patients. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from New York is Dr. Richard Friedman. Dr. Friedman is a professor of psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College and a frequent contributor to the New York Times Science section, where he writes on behavioral science. Welcome, Dr. Friedman. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Friedman, you wrote a nice piece for the New York Times about your experience as a psychiatrist offering email communication to your patients. Before you began doing that, you were imagining that this would be a simplification of your work. I did. I didn't know. What were you imagining that this would do to enhance your practice? Well, if you think that most communication takes place on the telephone, patients leave messages, you call them back, you know, there's a lot of phone tag before you contact them. Whereas if you get an email message from somebody, you hear instantly what it is that they want and you can respond quickly because typing a short response on email is very fast and you just put send. So I thought it would simplify my life and actually make things faster. What purposes did you think that it would hold for you and your practice? Just setting up appointments or more than that? I actually viewed it initially as something that was more administrative, that if a patient had a question about changing an appointment or needed a routine refill of a medication, that that would make things much more convenient than chasing them down with telephone messages. Right. And did you give special instructions to your patients before you began? Actually, I didn't. I didn't want to seem forbidding. I basically gave them email, especially those who asked, and the email is printed on my card, on my business card. So, you know, every patient has it, in fact. And even if they didn't, it's very easy to find someone's email by just going online. Did you have any particular concerns about offering that email without any stipulations, given the population that you're working with? As a psychiatrist, I did. I thought that particularly patients who are personality disordered and have real problems in having relationships would have problems, of course, in their relationship with me via email. So it was in the back of my mind, actually. And although you said you were looking to use this administratively, in your article you mentioned that some of your patients took it beyond that. I'm thinking in particular of the woman who tried to continue her therapy session with you through email. Exactly. And, you know, one patient mentioned in email that she was having suicidal feelings and thoughts in the middle of the night, one patient wanted me to read something that she had written in her diary. Another one wanted advice in between sessions about doing something. So, you know, the email, in a sense, was an extension of the kinds of psychological problems and conflicts that patients had in everyday life. They were just being played out in email. And what did you do with the email that you discovered about the patient who was having suicidal thoughts? I saw it in the morning, several hours after the patient had written it, and I called her immediately. And I explained that, well, I saw her that day and, you know, it turned out that she was not actually an acute suicide risk, but 
I explained to her that if anything ever happened like that again, where she was having suicidal feelings and thoughts, that wasn't really something I wanted to learn about an email. I wanted to know about it right away, meaning please call the service so they'll call me. Whether it's the morning, the night, the middle of the night, it doesn't matter. I want to know about that sort of thing. It's not for email. Did that episode or or a few of those types of episodes cause you to change your approach to giving out those emails? Or do you take that on a case-by-case basis as to whether people need more instruction about the appropriate use? I do it on a case-by-case basis. And, you know, for patients where there's going to be a significant amount of acting out over email... I basically tell them what the rules are regarding email, that if it has to do with a simple thing like a refill or an appointment change, email is fine. But if it's anything else, meaning the nature about how you're feeling or questions about what's going on in the treatment, that is going to have to wait until we see one another. That's going to have to involve a conversation. Some clinicians apparently do offer therapy sessions by email. How do you feel about that? I have some very serious reservations about it. I mean, on the one hand, it's true that there's a a real scarcity of mental health professionals in many, many areas in the country. So I don't want to withhold help from people who may not have access to, you know, clinicians in the flesh. On the other hand, I think the kind of interaction that you have via email is limited. The kind of information that you can learn about somebody is limited. And At the very least, you know, an initial evaluation should take place face-to-face with somebody. It's a very different thing starting a relationship without having met somebody because all of the most important clues and cues about a person's problems may be evident to you when you're sitting and you're talking to them, but nothing that you would ever pick up on an email. And some people are even talking about Skyping or offering to use cameras to add some of that information. Right. It's an interesting idea to see what the effect of that kind of treatment is. Again, it might be more appropriate in situations where therapy's actually started and you've actually met this clinician and you're going to be away for an extended period of time and you want to maintain contact and therapy with them. And it's an interesting proposition. I don't think that it's been well studied. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is psychiatrist Richard Friedman. Dr. Friedman, technology isn't always the clinician's strong suit, and it can be so helpful to read columns such as yours that will bring up this topic and, and give you know your insights about it, or to consult with colleagues and hear about their experiences. What has been, I'm sure you received feedback from the column, if not just ha- had discussions among your colleagues about using email. What are you hearing from other professionals who use email? I had a huge response from colleagues who, many of them shared my experience. You know, they really didn't have an idea about what it would be like to give patients email and were inundated, particularly those who do a lot more psychotherapy than I do. Other colleagues basically said that when they gave their email out, they gave very strict instructions about how they expected it to be used. And others called up and said, I never give out my email. And I said, well, I understand that, but that doesn't stop people from finding it. It's very easy. You know, you can just go online and Google people. And especially if you're somebody in an institution like I am, you know, they just go on the web page, the home web page of the institution and find you. That's true. You would also have to contend with that kind of action from patients, even if you gave them instructions. I'm thinking particularly if these are patients who are in a vulnerable state and just not absorbing the instructions or, for whatever reason, communicating the way they want to with email, regardless of what you ask. Right. People basically will do whatever they wish. 
not what you want them to. But that's true with the phone as it is with any form of technology. With the phone, clinicians more commonly will offer sessions over the phone from time to time if that's necessary, and usually just bill similarly to a face-to-face session. How would you handle the topic of billing with regard to email communication? You know, I've never billed anyone because I don't carry on sessions via email, and the responses are usually very short. It's a practical issue. I bill patients when I see them and have a session with them. I know that, you know, there are clinicians who do phone sessions and bill for phone sessions. On rare occasion, I've done that with patients who are traveling and, you know, need to have contact with me and can't come. But I wouldn't do it for email simply because I don't want to have a clinical encounter that's significant via email. Mm -hmm. And if people are sending long emails or communicating a lot to you in writing and asking you to take the time to study these things before they see you, then I guess it becomes a clinical issue. It becomes an issue for treatment. And I say to them, look, there are various reasons why people do this. But I would bring it back into the treatment and say, you know, this is interesting that you sent me a very long email. Why is this happening outside of the room? And, you know, this is the sort of thing that has to be covered when we meet with one another. Medicare and Medicaid seem to be encouraging greater use of the Internet, as are some insurance companies, but they make stipulations asking that there be encryption. What can you tell us about encryption methods for email? Well, I'm not a technology expert, but there are privacy and confidentiality issues, obviously, and HIPAA regulates the transfer of information from clinicians to the outer world. So unless you have specific consent from a patient, you can't communicate with them and send clinical information unsolicited. And even email, which is encrypted, there is no such thing as hack-proof software technology. Even the most secure systems are vulnerable to smart hackers. Right. There's definitely the issue of identity theft. But could you address how you feel about just simply the privacy within the patient's home? Often people share computers with family members and email accounts aren't necessarily you know, restricted for just one individual at a time to use? Patients may not always appreciate this, but the same can be said about any electronic communication, even answering machines. You know, when you leave a message for a patient and you know that they don't live alone, you know, you have to be very careful about what you say because they may not share their psychiatric histories or their medical histories even with family members. So, you know, unless someone lives alone and or I have explicit permission from a patient about what kinds of things I can leave in a message, I don't. I just say, this is Dr. Friedman. Please call me back. Mm -hmm. And so have you arrived at a comfortable place with how you use email in your practice right now? Comfortable but imperfect. I basically would like to reserve email for very short, administrative, perfunctory kinds of things like routine prescriptions and the changing or rescheduling of appointments or quick notices about somebody with an unexpected absence or having to cancel an appointment. But other than that, if it's important clinical issues, I want to hear about it in person. Now that you've opened the door to this and it is part of your practice, it would be difficult to go back. But would you encourage other professionals who haven't yet given out their email to go ahead and, and begin this? Yes, with limitations. And finally, perhaps some some of your thoughts about moving from that face-to-face interaction with people toward these other forms of communication and how you feel about that. I suppose I'm old-fashioned. I am leery about it. I think people are hardwired for emotional attachment, and emotional attachment requires facial recognition. I don't think having a relationship 
with a disembodied voice or someone who is IMing or emailing you from the other side of the galaxy is got the same kind of therapeutic effect, or at least I'm skeptical that it, that it may not. Mm-hmm. And even if it isn't for therapy, if it were just for prescriptions, do you feel there should be some limits as to even like how often you would f- refill a prescription without touching base at least over the telephone? The same guidelines would apply for the frequency of prescription refills by phone, meaning according to the clinical status of the patient. If this is somebody who is generally stable and they would have left you a message on a phone, you would refill it just as easily as if they had sent you an email. I wouldn't distinguish between the two of them. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Richard Friedman, professor of psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College. Thank you for the conversation, Dr. Friedman. You're welcome. My pleasure. You've been listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening.